Aunt Chloe's Politics by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, 1872. Of course, I don't know very much about these politics, but I know that some who run them do mighty ugly tricks. I seen them, honey, fugal round, and talk so awful sweet that you think them full of kindness as an egg is full of meat. Aunt Chloe. She is a recurring character in Frances Ellen Watkins Harper's book of poetry, Sketches of Southern Life, read here by Philadelphia poet Trapita B. Mason. Aunt Chloe starts off by saying she doesn't know much about politics, but it turns out she knows plenty. And by the time she wrote this poem in 1872, Frances knew plenty about politics, too. I'm Kalela Williams, a writer and historian, and this is Finding Francis, a podcast exploring the life and work of 19th century Philadelphia luminary Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. This podcast grew out of the work of the Francis Suite, a new musical and poetic work celebrating Harper's art and activism, which will be performed live and online in May of 2022 with Intercultural Journeys. During this four-part podcast, we'll speak with scholars, activists, poets, archivists, and musicians as we seek to answer this question of monuments. By monuments, I do not mean those of stone or marble, but those of memory, of honor. How do we pay homage? She's um, also writing now to uh, a different audience. Uh, Before, she was largely writing her poetry to a literate audience. Now she's writing her poetry for a developing audience in the sense that um, many of them are just beginning to learn how to read and write. And so she's writing poems that take on a different aesthetic. She develops and includes a dialect, a Black dialect in her poetry, which is really quite revolutionary. I mean, she anticipates... uh, the writing style of James Weldon Johnson, who's credited with coming up with a dialect that was not insulting or, you know, or made black people seem to be, you know, stupid, which is what you find in a lot of the uh, American, you know, white literature. And she does this uh, in Sketches of Southern Life. And, and it's this whole voice and it's documenting the history in the voice of Aunt Chloe, who talks about slavery and the Civil War and freedom and building a new home and learning to read and and um and it's amazing because she has the um the ability to understand that she can't continue to write in these very very intricate um sonnets so you know as it were but she takes the ballad form which she had also mastered and she changes the language so that she can attract the black audience that's learning to read and and telling their story in a language that you know orally uh, will connect with the way that they speak, but also the characters are dignified and intelligent and so forth. And I just thought that was amazing that she understood that she needed to develop a different voice to communicate with an audience that was learning to read. And these books were also used in these new freedom schools. This is Dr. Melba Boyd, author of Discarded Legacy, Politics and Poetics in the Life of Francis E.W. Harper. By the latter half of the 19th century, 
Harper was seeing a shift in U.S. society. The Civil War had ended slavery as an institution, but Reconstruction and its aftermath brought new and dire challenges. Here's another verse from Aunt Chloe's Politics. Now, I don't believe in looking honest people in the face and saying when they're doing wrong that I haven't sold my race. When we want to school our children, if the money isn't there, whether black or white have took it, the loss we all must share. Reading this poem is Trapita B. Mason, the former executive director of Historic Germantown and the 2020 Poet Laureate of Philadelphia. I like it because I like the vernacular. And I think, you know, just a familiarity um, with this. I write a lot about like family and people. Um, and that's a that's a big theme, just, you know, regular folk. And I think this was her, you know, showing regular folk, you know, um, just through the language and, and through this poem. So it's familiar. And, um, and, you know, I don't know who Aunt Chloe was, but I just love the fact that it's really familiar and reminded me of her kind of having a conversation with someone who, you know, is just matter of fact and, you know, just letting letting folk know what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. And it's a place from the sketches of Southern life. Mm-hmm. Piece, so it's, it's kind of like capturing that voice as well. Yeah. And, and, and I think all of us have had a not Chloe. Yes. Just the tradition of aunties. Yes. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. so. To pay this uh, kind of respect in the poem. That's another thing that I think there's a connection with this poem is the fact that, you know, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, yeah, Anko is talking about a specific thing and a specific topic and subject, but there's also, um, I don't know, I just love the matter of factness here and giving space for this woman who probably wouldn't have had a poem. But what did poetry mean in the 19th century? And what does it mean now? I'm continuing my talk with Trapita. During Francis Ellen Watkins Harper's time, Poets were the athlete, and in, in our community, yes, yes, in yes, this community, yes. poets were the athletes. Mm-hmm. They were the people who you flocked to see. They were the people who you—that um, was your source of entertainment and your mm-hmm. source of affirmation, and yes. yeah, your source of community. Yeah. It's interesting seeing, you know, one thing that we did was look at documents and ephemera at the historical society, and just looking at like a ticket to her readings. And um, mm-hmm. do you think that poetry? is, um, I don't want to use the word diminished, but do you think that it's not given its due right now? And I mean, just poetry in general. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, it just takes on so many forms and has the ability, sort of like water, right? Mm-hmm. It can, it can kind of seep into all of these spaces in so many ways, you know, whether it's through, edu- you know, typical academia or teaching or whether it's through community activism or some people are just quietly doing their thing on the page, there's space and there's room for everyone. So I think, yeah, definitely um, there are ways, it depends on what you're looking for in this craft, right? There are ways that um, writers have still managed to get over that mountaintop mm-hmm. <laughs> and to be able to do whatever they need to do with this poetry. Uh, but there are other ways, I think, if someone wants to have, you know, be uh, sustain themselves as a practice, I do think you have to, you know, you have to work a little harder to do that compared to other genres in literature. Now, I believe that poetry has a, it, it, in my opinion, I think it's bigger 
now than it's ever been because we've been in this moment of stillness mm-hmm. in the world, you know, because of the pandemic. And it's one of those art forms that can easily translate. Everyone and anyone can create a poem and then you can share it in so many ways. It's a solitary and yet communal activity in some ways. Yes, yes it is. It isn't just where poetry fit then and how it fits now into the larger world, but what it means to us as individuals. Thinking about how we remember a person, I spoke again with Yolanda Wisher, 2016 Philadelphia Poet Laureate. It seems to be important to you to elevate history and at the same time to sort of talk back to history, to sort of engage in a conversation with history, and at the same time bringing your voice to the future, bringing your voice to the now and mm-hmm. to the future. Um, do you do you feel like you do that? Do you feel like that's in your work? Um, and why is that important if it is? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely do um, very, very consciously now engage with history. I think it starts for me, you know, in this search that I've always been on, this search for ancestors, you know, search for my own personal ancestors. I grew up not knowing my birth father for many years of my life. I didn't meet him until I was 30. There were many parts of my family, that part of my family, as well as parts of my maternal family. I just didn't have access to. And so the search for origins um, was something that was always present in my just, you know, geeky awareness and and love of history. You know, even, you know, as we were studying American history in school, I was worrying about how my family fit into that, you know, and where we were in all of that. And I have this habit of looking at old pictures of Black folks from different centuries and wondering if, if that's somebody I'm related to, if that's somebody in my family. So I feel like I'm always in conversations with ancestors and sometimes they're not of your blood. I think the more I search for my own ancestors, I realize that blood is a very complicated thing and families are even more complicated and they're not necessarily made of blood. And so, you know, in the search for these literary ancestors, I'm also searching for a family too. My name is Inas Akila. I am the creator and one of three co-founders of the Black and Brown Workers Cooperative. And I I don't know, I do many things, but to focus on the organizing work, right, um, we've we've focused really on displacement, the displacement of Black bodies, um, particularly, and the connections to displacement that travel all the way from our hoods, right, um, in Philly, to our spaces of work. Right. And so we realized very early on that we could not do labor organizing um, without doing organizing around displacement, because if we don't even know where we're going to live, how can we think about, you know, making our, our work conditions better? Right. Or dare I say, abolishing the nonprofit industrial complex. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I am an abolitionist through and through. And that does include um, the complete removal of the nonprofit industrial complex. And as we understand it through our work. Right. You know, as we, we are thinking about illness and disease in our communities as well. Right. All of these things are connected. Right. So what happens when our housing is insecure and our job spaces are not safe. Right. All of these things increase our vulnerability. Right. To the state to the state, right? And to the prison industrial complex. Um, And so these are all things that my work has focused on. We think of ourselves as decolonial 
comrades, um, decolonial theorists, um, but we're more than theorists because we are really focused on embodied action and change, right? Like, what is theory without actually walking the walk? I reached out to Inas because their activism strongly speaks to that of Francis Harper's. Like many of us, Inas wasn't particularly familiar with Harper until recently. And yet, it seems like they've been channeling her legacy all along. Lastly, I'm an energy worker. Um, I'm a Reiki practitioner, um, and I'm an ancestral medium um, and channeler. Um, And so those are things that all inform my work. The concept of ancestry really speaks to me as I think about how we can create a monument to Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Literally, my ancestral reverence work is what led to my organizing work. (laughs) And I I named that on purpose because Mm -hmm. I think that often there's this binary created um, between our organizing work and our deeply spiritual work. When we know historically as Black people, as Black and Indigenous people, our our political work, our revolutionary work um, has been deeply intertwined with the deities that we pray to, with the ancestors who guide us, right? Um, I will say that I was able to vision the cooperative in front of my altar, right? It was during a time where I was working for an aid service organization. I was a a manager there. I had some privilege. um, And I was also witnessing the very same oppressions that I had witnessed working in the anti-violence movement, right? I mean, that is a lot of white folks at the top, um, what we refer to as a plantation politic in our cooperative Um, And a lot of like black and brown folks on the front lines, right, with very little voice, you know, paid the least, but giving credibility to these spaces, right, the lifeline to these to these community based so-called community based organizations. And I came to a point where I could not be complicit. Like I came to a point where every day I went home and I had to look in the mirror and I couldn't live with myself if I did not take some kind of action, me becoming a whistleblower was completely connected to my spiritual practice of being able to sit in front of my altar and listen to my ancestors and hear my ancestors tell me, like, you know what to do. (laughs) And me sitting there like, well, what do you mean? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to make a living? How am I going to survive if I just pull, you know, call out this organization, right? Like I'm fresh out of grad school. I have all these loans. And they were like, no, no, you know, if you listen to spirit, you will be held through this. What does it do for people when you channel? Why do you think that's important? Why do you why do you feel that you have to share that? Because we all need to know we're not alone. Right? We all need to know that we are held, we are loved unconditionally. If we were to lose everything around us, we would still be held. What Inas Akila shared about their work reverberated within Francis Harper's story. This concept of leaping and knowing will be held this steadfast faith. There's faith in what you can't see and there's faith in who you can. Frances's later life was shaped by networks. She was deeply entrenched in the social and political life of Black activists. In her later decades, Harper directed the American Association of Colored Youth, and she was the superintendent of the colored sections of the Philadelphia and Pennsylvania Women's Christian Temperance Unions. She was a co-founder of the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs, serving as vice president and organizing with other Black women. Trapita and I talked about why sisterhood is vital. I think it's really underestimated that 
the importance of that, of naming, of of claiming these folks, mm. you know. And I have, a, you know, as a writer in my time, not because it was done on purpose, but, you, you know, with the busyness of doing everything that we do, I too have been in that position where things go so fast and then you're not really thinking like really putting effort and attention into making sure that you are helping to, to amplify these voices. And I feel that way about um, her. I feel that way about Lucille Clifton. I feel that way about Sister Sonia. Um, and I think that's where you need questions you asked about this whole idea of sisterhood. So sisterhood to, for me is not only about supporting one another, helping one another through these trials and tribulation, particularly as writers, because so much, you know, joy and also rejection is connected, you know, to, to writing mm -hmm. uh, and in the literal form of a rejection letter. Yeah. <laughs> to, mm -hmm. And then also other ways of being rejected and disregarded. And like, yeah, your sisters are there in this community, whether they are by you, next to you physically, or, you know, they're out there and they're rooting for you. So they're there for that, but they're also there that when you have the strength in numbers, mm -hmm. then you can say, hey, we got to figure out what's going on with Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. Harper. Why don't know, more people know about mm -hmm. her? So a lot of this work is also about uncovering, I don't want to say discovering or digging, mm -hmm. but just really about exposing, mm -hmm. you know, amplifying. Um, so I, I think this is important. I think more people need to know about the impact. For me, you had asked a question about the poetry and how it kind of lands on me as a poet. It does. I mean, the fact that this woman is creating in this era and being able to wake up every day to put lines on paper, for me, that's it. That's where I come. It stays with me. I'm in the Historical Society of Pennsylvania's reading room, talking again with their Director of Education and Programs, Justina Barrett. We're looking at some artifacts that speak to Harper's life. So we have a couple of documents here. One is a handbill. It's very, um, it's smaller than, you know, we're not talking an eight by 10. We're talking more like maybe four by six, five yeah, by seven. Yeah, maybe five by seven, maybe even four by seven. This little small document, Poetical Readings by Mrs. Few Harper, uh, F.E.W. Harper, uh, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper. Um, Mrs. Harper will give poetical readings of the original poems on Thursday evening, October 4th, 1867 at 8 o'clock at Liberty Hall, Lombard Street below 8th, on which occasion she will read amongst other productions, other productions, thank you, her new and thrilling poem entitled Moses in bold. Those, therefore, who would enjoy a rare intellectual feast and who can appreciate the wonderful attainments of this poetical genius and eloquent speaker should not fail to be present with their friends. Bring Admission, friends. <laughs> 15 cents, that's right. And so this is like speaking to poetry readings as a social event. Like, it's a thrilling poem. It's a new poem. It's at Liberty Hall. Come bring right, your friends. Bring your friends. Like it's a social occasion. Mm -hmm. There's a committee. Tickets may be had of the committee, so you could go to William Still's office. Um, we actually have a ticket here. We've got this little this little card. Um, uh, I believe it's a. I'm not actually sure, but it's a. It's this little pink card. Oh, I feel like it's a ticket. Yeah. No, I, I believe it's a ticket. I don't it's think it's about it would... the size of a slightly smaller than a business card. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's not a. It's not an advertisement. It's it's to get in. Yeah, and it's um it's it's very small and it's pink. 
Um, and it just says Liberty Hall, Lombard Street, below 8th. Um, that was an old space that um, where you'd have uh, events like this. You'd also have like essays or, or like speeches and um, uh, lectures that would take place there. So is she known? Like, make the, mm-hmm. I mean, this, mm-hmm. again, the handbill has this exciting um, uh, energy around it. Like, come see it, this this thrilling poem and she's a poetical genius she is a draw that's mm-hmm. exactly right she is a draw she is um she is someone who's worth seeing so just really incredible and i think actually now we can sort of maybe turn to some documents from the seventh ward that are generally interesting just that speak to this neighborhood this incredible neighborhood so we've got some items that don't speak to Frances ellen watkins harper specifically but they are social events that she might have attended that her friends would have attended these are things that happened in the seventh ward and by the way i'm talking a lot about the seventh ward that was part of philadelphia um during this time period that was um below spruce um uh from river to river and above um I think South Street was the margin, although a lot of folks lived on Bainbridge, too. So this is where you see a lot of folks, a lot of black folks living in Philadelphia. I believe in the in the mid 19th century, for sure, that's where the highest concentration of black folks were in the Seventh Ward. Um, and this actually, 18th century, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. The 18th century, too. So you have this sense of community here and you have a resourced community. You have a middle class, a very vibrant middle class that's busy. We can see that even before living in Philadelphia, Harper was an active presence in this city. In 1871, she bought a house here, living near 10th and Bainbridge Streets, in the Seventh Ward community, across the street from her old friends, William and Letitia Still, as well as the Institute for Colored Youth. She joined an integrated church rather than one of the many African-American churches in Philadelphia. For her, where she worshipped had to align with what she believed. She recognized the problem of the patriarchy, and she was against this this model that was being also promoted at the time that you know she's engaged in the women's movement, and then of course the the colored women's um, club movement in the eighteen nineties with Ida B. Wells and and other women of color, Anna Julia Cooper. Um, that the, you also have these men who are trying to emulate the patriarchy. You know, to be a real man, you gotta be head of the house, a woman's supposed to do what you say. Uh, so they were emulating what white men were doing and they were like, no, 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 no. You know, women have to have equal footing. And so she understood that the only way you could do that, or one of the main ways that you, you were able to do that is that you had economic power, that you were bringing something to the table. And if things didn't work out, which of course she found out, you know, tragically by her husband dying, you know, she had to be able to take care of herself um, because she was ostensibly, she was alone in the world. She was very much concerned, say for example, with how um, the church, um, the black church was not appreciative you know, of women's equality. So she actually um, became a member of the, the uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, which believed that women should, you know, have equality with men. And even though she continued to teach like Sunday school at an AME church near her, she had joined the Universalist Church, which which I found, you know, really powerful. I, I remember it was also a time when like the Black Church of God 
also respected, you know, women as being equal. So you see this separation that begins to occur because in the free community, there is this conflict in terms of where are you going to follow the liberation perspective of, you know, the history of black struggle, or are you going to emulate, you know, the white patriarchal um, model? So she, she was like, no, mm -mm, mm -mm. you know, I can't go there. And so her work, you know, and uh, even like her friendship with like Ida B. Wells, consequently, she had to make this decision. And so she now found herself in the situation where she had to really, really assert the fact that black women, in order to be free, they had to be financially independent. As Dr. Melba Boyd explained, Harper joined the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia. She would write about women biblical figures in some of her poetry. And she was a person who had learned the Bible by reading it in a more original form, right? She, she was able to read it in Latin as opposed to in English, where things get manipulated and shifted. And so she also illuminated the vision of the power of really strong biblical female figures, right? And so this was really important in terms of how it informed, you know, her religious beliefs. And even the way that people of color are presented in a, shall we say, uh, corrupted European form, where the idea that Christ is white, she says, no, no, this is what they look like. <laughs> These are brown people. And, you know, and so she, in her poems, I say she basically, she, she filled the color back in. You know, and so Moses is not, you know, this this image of this white um, savior. He is um, actually a Hebrew and Hebrews, you know, were people living in northern Africa. And so she changes that uh, telling of history by the way that, you know, she writes her poetry and she writes her, her stories. That is a consequence a, of having a very extensive education and having the option to be able to read the Bible closest to its most original, you know, form, right? As opposed to, shall we say, the slave master's narrative uh, that's used uh, to change the idea of who Christ was, who Moses was, who the Hebrews were. So I think she, she kept one foot in the AME church, but she also, uh, as Ida B. Wells came once to Philadelphia for AME conference and, um, and she stayed with Frances Harper, um, which is really cool. I can just imagine two girlfriends sitting there kicking it. Right. And Ida B. Wells writes about it. She said, you know, the, the sexism is just, just like, mm -mm. you know, that's, she said it was interesting, but their ideas on women is just too limited. And Harper had obviously arrived at the same conclusion because you know, she says, well, I'm going to do what I can do with the kids, but I'm going to, when I go worship, I'm, I'm going over here with a more enlightened group of people. You know, these are people who have been a part of the movement, you know, the abolitionist movement, the women's movement and so forth. So uh, it was uh, the more progressive church at that time. Spirituality girded Harper. In the 1870s, she traveled south and she saw the effects of racially motivated violence she saw the ways in which African-Americans were pushed aside and even stomped upon by Jim Crow laws, by voting restrictions, by hatred. 
I talked to Ruth Naomi Floyd, composer of the Francis Suite, to hear her views on faith and on Francis. Spirituality is central and also a foundation for my my art making. And as it was for, for Harper, I firmly believe in Imago Dei, which really means that all human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And I, I believe that God is the first and greatest artist, the one who created out of nothing. So I believe in things such as truth, faith, justice, grace, mercy, forgiveness, responsibility, compassion, righteous rage and love, and so many other things. But I would not be able to create my music and art in the same way without this strong foundation. And when I talk about Imago Dei, and that's the, the root of my justice work, is that to think of anyone as less than is to say to God, the first and great artist, you made a mistake. And we become a critic to the first and greatest artist. You know, we become a critic to God saying, you didn't quite make this race well, or you didn't make this person as well. But more importantly, we're saying that that image does not reflect God and in forever who whichever spirituality you know our listeners embrace or love or goodness that that person is deemed less than just because they're different and that theology of imago day is what is what pushes me and what continues to inspire me to create um, in my art making and in my justice work that we are all equal and I will not accept that any human being walking this earth is less than. And Frances believed this in her heart and knew that. And that's why she, in many cases, she brought the hammer because that was what was at cost. That lie that we are, that a human being is less than another human being. There are few voices, but it seems that there are loud voices that believe that equality for one means less than for them. And and perhaps it's that need or that, that feeling threatened that makes them feel that that they are superior or that they are better. It's interesting when we think about Francis Ellen Watkins Harper would have known this deeply. Have you thought about just sort of the proliferation of of hate or of of thoughts that are just destructive? I have, and I, I love Francis's quote that says, slavery is dead, but the spirit which animated it still lives. In 2021, that's still true. Slavery is over, but the spirit which animated it still lives. And then you say, why? And then you, you, I'm drawn to another Francis Harper quote that says, oh, could slavery exist long if it did not sit on a commercial throne. So those two quotes together gives us insight of why why historically in America, one group of people have oppressed and dehumanized another group of people. And it goes to, you know, your remarks, what you just said, is that, yes, everyone would say we're all equal, but in our actions and our views, we haven't, whether it's for greed, whether it's for capitalism, whether it's for profit, whether it's for hatred, that spirit is still alive and well. Ruth's words bring us back to Francis's writings and to her poem, Aunt Chloe's Politics. As I said earlier, we all have an Aunt Chloe. 
and she always wants to put in a word. Aunt Chloe's Politics by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, 1872. Of course, I don't know very much about these politics, but I know that some who run them do mighty ugly tricks. I seen them, honey, fugle round, and talk so awful sweet that you think them full of kindness as an egg is full of meat. Now, I don't believe in looking honest people in the face and saying when they're doing wrong that I haven't sold my race. When we want to school our children, if the money isn't there, whether black or white have took it, the loss we all must share. And this buying up each other is something worse than mean, though I think's a heap of voting. I go for voting clean. I'm Kalele Williams, and this podcast was produced by the staff of Intercultural Journeys. Nia Benjamin, Marla Burkholder, and Carly Rappaport-Stein, and audio engineers Jeremy Rappaport-Stein and Mobe Lola Irizari. The Francis Suite is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support comes from the Presser Foundation, the Musical Fund Society, and Fleischer Art Memorial. Funding for the public programs associated with the Francis Suite, including this podcast, has been provided by Spring Point Partners, Pennsylvania Humanities, and the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021.